0: Welcome to the May 8th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is in 2nd Kings 4 through 6 and Luke 24. Hopefully, you've already spent time in God's word, so let's get started. Okay, 2nd Kings chapter 4. Um now that Elijah is gone, uh, Elisha's ministry kicks into full swing. Uh, he is the man of God who speaks God's words to the people. And as a prophet with the ability to work miracles, he is also sent to assist the needs of people. And so this is Elisha's ministry. But on a side note, before we get to Elisha, I want to point out something about the nature of Jesus. Yes, in the Old Testament, let's talk about Jesus. I want to point out something about the nature of Jesus. Uh, When he walked on the earth, so many people believe, rightfully, that he was fully God and fully man, yet they believe that his humanity wasn't really important, that they believe it was kind of insignificant. They believe that he lived his life out on earth as fully God, but just with skin on so they don't believe that the fully man part is really that significant. Um, after all, they uh, they say, how is it that he was able to do all the miracles if he wasn't God? And so obviously he's living his life as fully God as he's walking the earth during his 33 years of life and three-year ministry. Yet I want you to observe as we read about the ministries of the Old Testament prophets that they did the same kind of miracles as Jesus, including raising people from the dead. Elijah raised the son of the widow from Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17. And in today's reading, we read that Elisha raised a boy from the dead. So I just want you to know that when we look at Jesus in the gospels and we see him performing miracles and we think, ah, that points to his deity. No, that points to the spirit of God that was on him. Uh, the Old, many Old Testament prophets did the same things that Jesus did. Now, this truth, I want to be clear, in no way marginalizes the ministry of Jesus. It merely, but essentially, informs us that Jesus, who has always been fully God, lived his life on earth not as fully God, but as fully man. He was fully God when he was walking planet earth, but he lived his life as fully man. This is so important in understanding what Jesus was really doing as he lived his life on earth for those 33 years. In fact, Paul just one of the the significant Theological points here is Paul, as he was writing to, I believe it was the church of Corinth, called Jesus the second Adam because Jesus, as fully man, came back to win back what the first man, Adam, lost. So I just want you to know that as we look at Elisha's ministry, realize that we're going to see some things. That Jesus did. In fact, remember the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 in the Gospels that Jesus did? We're going to see Elisha do something just like that in today's reading. Okay, so you ready to get started? Let's dig in. Uh, let's look at 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 1. It says, one of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, has died. You know that your servant feared the Lord. Now the creditor is coming to take my two children as his slaves. So we're introduced to an unnamed widow. Her husband had been someone the Lord had chosen to speak on his behalf. He was a godly man, but even godly people die. Apparently, they had accumulated debt, his family had accumulated debt, or they may have been living so financially tight that his death threw his wife and children into headlong into debt. So now she has no source of income, or maybe the source of income is very minuscule, and the debtors are coming to take her two children away as slaves. There was probably terror in her eyes, in her mother's eyes, as she had no reason to believe the inevitable could be stopped. But she just had to tell Elisha about it. Well, Elisha, like Elijah, was a man of action. Sure, Elijah grew discouraged after the Mount Carmel victory, but they were generally men who didn't want to fret. Instead, they wanted to work the problem. Elisha Inquires of the, and the widow says, inquires, and the widow says that she had uh, nothing in the house but a jar of oil. That was it. So Elisha instructs her to borrow empty vessels and pour her oil into them. Listen to 2 Kings 4, verses 5 and 6. After she had shut the door behind her and her sons, they kept bringing her containers, and she kept pouring. When they were full, she said to her son, Bring me another container. But he replied that there aren't any more. And then the oil stopped. Essentially, this story teaches us about faith. If they had trusted the Lord for more, they would have gotten a house full of jars. They would have borrowed jars from all of their neighbors and filled the house. But the miracle was according to their faith. So we're left to wonder... How much do I really trust the Lord? How much do you really trust the Lord? And what are we actually trusting the Lord to do? It's one thing to pray that God would move in a situation, but it's quite another to have the quiet confidence and faith that he is going to move. This is what I see as I look at that story. Well, in verses eight through 10, we read about the Shunammite Shunammite woman. Uh, She provided a meal for Elisha every time he passed by. And she also got her husband to build a small room with only a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp for him that he could stop by and stay in anytime he wanted. Honestly, A room like that sounds, to me, incredible, (laughs) at least for people who love to study and love to read, love to get into God's Word so that they can share it with others. The only thing that I would add uh, would be a laptop, computer, and Wi-Fi connection. But anyway, in verses 11 through 17, we read that Elisha wanted to do something kind in return for the Shunammite woman's kindness toward him. He asked uh, what she wanted. Well, she didn't really respond with her request. And so between Elisha and Gehazi, uh, his servant, it was determined that she would love to have a son. She didn't have a kid. And so, hey, I bet she'd love to have a son. So Elijah promised her that she would have a son in 12 months. In 12 months, she would have a son in her arms. Well, in verses 18 through 37, we read about a medical incident with the Shunammite woman's son. Uh, sure enough, he's born, but uh, then as a little boy, maybe a toddler, he complains, my head, my head. And as it, re- um, and, uh, as it requires the father's servant uh, to take him to his mother, we wonder if it was an aneurysm or something of the sort. We're told that the child lay in the lap of his mother until noon, and then he died. We can only imagine the unspeakable grief of this mom as she began to wail as she held her dead son in her arms. The mom takes off to Mount Carmel to meet Elisha. Uh, he sends his servant Gehazi to ask her if everything is all right, you know, as as she's approaching. And she said that, uh, yeah, everything's okay, but it seems as if she was not interested in talking to him. She was going to say whatever she needed to. She was going to speak with Elisha. Well, Elisha sent his servant, after he spoke with her, sent his servant Gehazi to lay his staff on the dead boy's face, to go down to the city, go down to the the place where her son lay dead, and lay his staff, Elijah's staff, on the boy's face. Uh, The woman was so convinced that Elijah could do something about it that she refused to leave Elisha, even with her dead son, back at her home. So Elisha saw her tenacity, saw her determination, and he decided to head to her home with her. Well, Gehazi came back and said that the staff thing laying over his head didn't work. The child didn't respond. He's still dead. So Elisha went into the room and bent over the boy with his nose to his nose and his mouth to his mouth. And uh, he prayed and then did it again. And the child finally sneezed. And Elisha, like Elijah and Jesus, essentially, in the power of the Holy Spirit, raised someone from the dead. We realize Jesus in his ministry, we're told that he raised three people. And we realize also in the Old Testament that there were men of God that were empowered. It was not in their power. It was the Holy Spirit who did it, but it was in the power of the Holy Spirit that they raised people from the dead as well. Then we observe in verses 38 through 41 that Elisha cured a pot of stew when a poisonous plant was put in it. And then verses 42 through 44, we read of how Elisha made a sack of 20 loaves of barley bread to satisfy the hunger of an apparently very large crowd. And when you read those verses, you cannot help but reflect on the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and then the 4,000. It is very similar to Jesus miraculous feeding of a massive crowd with five loaves and two fishes second Kings 5 let's read verse 1 Naaman commander of the army for the king of Aram was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. Apparently, this was leprosy. Um, So long story short, the king of Aram sent, uh, according to verse 5, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing, and a letter. No doubt the king of Israel saw all of the wealth, the gold, the silver, the clothing, and wondered what wonderful thing he had done to deserve this gift. He was feeling wonderful until he read the letter. Listen to verse 6. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease unquote. Well, when the letter was read to the king of Israel, he panicked. He believed that this letter was a setup. He thought the king of Aram was putting him into a no-win situation, which would require that he tell the king of Aram that he could not do as, as was requested, and it may even lead to war. He was panicking. Well, Elisha heard about this situation and told the king of uh, Israel to send Naaman to him. When Naaman arrived, Elisha did not even come out to meet him. He simply told him through his servant to go and dip in the Jordan River seven times. Realize that Elisha did not have a riverfront property. Naaman couldn't simply go into Elisha's front yard and dip in the Jordan. He would have had to travel a great distance. So Naaman felt disrespected and inconvenienced, and it made him furious. I've noticed in my own spiritual experience that oftentimes the Lord takes opportunities in various circumstances that I've been through to humble me. I've got a long way to go. Every single one of us has a pride problem, some worse than others, but I've got a long way to go. And since the Lord hates pride, I've discovered that he uses circumstances to kill it in us. A mature Christian observes that as God has worked on them, they realize that uh, God they, that they can do nothing apart from Christ. And they have, through circumstances in their life that God has sent their way, they have been humbled and realized that they desperately need the Lord. So Naaman was coming into an encounter where the Lord was going to work a miracle in his body. And we should expect that the Lord was going to strike a death blow at, Nathan's, at Naaman's pride, but Naaman eventually went, dipped in the Jordan, and was healed. So this caused him to swallow his pride and say, you know what? As silly as this is, Elisha has said this. I'm going to act on it. His servant actually encouraged him to do this. Um, I, I wonder, you know, what it was like for him to go in and, okay, I guess I have to do this. And, okay, I've just dug one time in the Jordan River. Okay, I'm going to go down this second. You know, I bet he wasn't doing this um, in a way that, in, in, at least in my mind, I'm imagining that he didn't do this in a way that um, demonstrated immediate humility. I think that humility would have come whenever he realized that what seemed silly was actually used to bring healing to his body, and I'm telling you, I've just discovered that God delights to, to send things into our life to kill pride in our hearts and in our minds, and, uh, that's what, God's, that's what God, through Elisha, was doing with Naaman. You know what? I'm not going to do something incredible here, Naaman. I'm not going to you know, do this big ceremony and just put you in awe of the God of heaven. I'm going to tell you to go down to the river and dip seven times and then come out and you're going to be okay. Um, I'm just telling you, uh, Christian, that uh, God loves to humble us. He hates pride. He gives grace to the humble. So filled with exuberance and gratitude, now that Nathan Naaman, I don't know why I keep trying to call him Nathan, Naaman uh, has been healed, he wanted to go back and give something to Elisha. And when he tried to do so, Elisha refused to receive anything from him. Well, unfortunately for Elisha's servant, Gehazi, he, Gehazi, went secretly to Naaman and he lied to him and said, hey, Elisha changed his mind, and yes, you can give some of those things, and so he received those gifts, and then when he got back, he lied to his master, he lied to Elisha, and then Gehazi became a leper instead of Naaman, and so there was disobedience, there was uh, self-centeredness in Gehazi, and so he would receive the consequences of such a grievous sin. 2 Kings 6. In uh, verses 1-7, through 7, Elisha made an iron axe head float on water so that it could be located and retrieved. And next we read that Elisha was... A- and so there's just a lot of miracles, a lot of things going on. And so I'm just trying to summarize this. Uh, So next, after the iron axe head floated, uh, we read that Elisha was able uh, even to know where Israel's enemy would camp and when they would try to attack. Uh, The king of Aram came to believe that he had a traitor in his midst who was funneling secrets to Israel's king. Um, and because every time the king of Aram camped somewhere, every time he tried to run a a play on the battlefield to try to defeat a segment of Israel, it would be discovered. It was almost as if Israel already knows what he's going to do. Every single move he makes, they know what he's going to do, and so he thought he's got a traitor in the camp. But it was told to the king of Aram that Elisha was a prophet who knew, quote, According to verse 12, quote, even the words you speak in your bedroom, unquote. So the king of Aram gave orders to capture Elisha. Yeah, good luck with that. When it was discovered uh, that Elisha was in Dotham, the army of Aram went and surrounded the city. And when Elisha's servant woke up and saw the army surrounding the city, he panicked. Now, I don't know if this is Gehazi. This is probably some other uh, servant, but he panicked. But Elisha's words still speak comfort to us today. Listen to 2 Kings 6, verses 16 and 17. Elisha said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Friend, I'm telling you, that still is true. Those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Don't be afraid. Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw that the mountains were covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, What were the chariots of fire and the horses? That was the angelic host. That was God's army. Those were angels that were ready to defend Elisha at all costs. Friends, I do believe this is still true. Not only are those of us, uh, those who are for us, God's angelic army, are greater than those who are against us. I suspect that we would be shocked out of our minds if we could be given, like the servant, if we could be given the ability to see the angelic hosts all around us at any given moment. I suspect that we would wonder why we ever, ever would need to get scared. (laughs) In verses 18 through 23, we read that Elisha engaged in deception, right? So you've still got the army of Aram that's uh, around Dothan, uh, where uh, Elisha is. And so uh, he engaged in deception and accepted practice during wartime. And uh, God blinded the army so that he took them into Samaria. (laughs) That's the capital city of Israel. He took them into Samaria. Essentially, that uh, that was Israel's capital city. Israel's uh, army was ready to kill them, but Elisha pointed out that those captured in war should not be killed. Uh, they were fed and sent on their way. And, and by the way, here in America, um, the way we treat prisoners of war, at least the way we know that we should treat prisoners of war and many other things, I'm telling you, much of that comes from... Um, The founders of this nation, whether or not they were full fledged Christians or not, they did know their Bible. They did know their Bible. And so much of the stuff that is written into our documents and much of the way that we do things is rooted in a Judeo Christian worldview. Judeo meaning the Old Testament, Christian, the New Testament. It's a biblical worldview. And so we are blessed, even though our nation is just tanking morally right now we are so blessed uh, to have lived and continue to live in a country that has so many uh signs that uh God's biblical standards are just all over the place and they are for human flourishing they are for our good well the CSB translation and some other translations in of second King 623 are unfortunate. Yes, the translation I use, the CSB, I believe that it mistranslates, and it really doesn't translate 2 Kings 6.23 very well. It says, the Aramean raiders did not come into Israel's land again. Um, the Aramean raiders did not come into Israel's land again. Well, why is this unfortunate? because the Hebrew language doesn't necessarily say that they never came into Israel's land again. Further, we read in the next verse that Aram invaded the land of Israel. <laughs> the English standard version, a uh, translation that I have used before and love, uh, it translates it, I think it translates it better, Second Kings 6.23, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. And so uh, the CSB does say the Aramean raiders, um, but uh, but I, I think that that the ESV is a little bit more clear when it says the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. And so we're led to believe that it's not necessarily the people, but it's the type of mission that they did not go on raids in the land of Israel. Uh, so they did not uh, come on those pesky raids, but they would come as a battle as an army that was ready for war again uh, in the very next verse and sure enough verses 24 through 33 tell us of an instance where the Aramean army came against Samaria Uh, we're told that uh, the army of Aram laid siege laid siege laying siege was a practice of military forces at that time An army would uh, surround a city, a siege would be where an army surrounds a city and refuses to let any people or resources in and would certainly not let anyone out. Eventually the water and food within the city would be consumed and the people would either die or resort to cannibalism and then die. If you were paying attention, and I'm certain that you were, if you were paying attention to the text of 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, you see where we actually read of cannibalism that was taking place inside of this city as it was under a siege. Of course, they could always surrender rather than go through all of that to the opposing army, but uh, there was no telling what would happen to them when they did that. So many of them would rather just stay in the safety of their own place, even though it guaranteed that they would die. Well, the king of Israel apparently held Elisha responsible for the Aramean attack because we read in verse 31, he announced, may God punish me and do so severely if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Well, the king of Israel sent a messenger to decapitate Elisha. It did not happen. Elisha was ready for him. And we're going to read about what happens tomorrow. Luke 24. Uh, Let's begin with verse 1, of course. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared, So we read that some ladies came to Jesus' tomb early on Sunday morning, and we may wonder what they were thinking. After all, didn't they know that the tomb had been sealed by Rome? so that no one could open it? And didn't they know that guards were protecting it? Well, the answer to those questions would be a resounding no. They had no clue, no idea why. Because we read in Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66, that the religious folks violated the Sabbath when they went and and went to those that were in Rome and had the tomb sealed and had the guard set. They violated the Sabbath to do that. Well, the ladies, on the other hand, were observing the Sabbath, the Saturday, and thought the tomb would be as they left it on Friday evening. The only problem they thought that they would have is how are they going to roll the stone away? Well, the ladies arrived at the tomb and found the stone rolled away, and there's no mention that they saw the guards who had become paralyzed with fright, so the guards were almost certainly already gone. And then the lady saw the angels, Um, and Luke's gospel, in this passage, it tells us two men. Uh, But we realize, you know, remember in the book of Genesis when Abraham was sitting in, under his uh, the tent awning in the, uh, the heat of the day, he looked out on the plains of Mamre and saw three men coming toward him. Well, as we read that story, we realize one of those men is Jesus and the other two, when we read the next chapter, were the angels that went into Sodom and Gomorrah to get Lot and his family out. So we have no trouble un- seeing that the Old Testament and the New Testament are consistent, that sometimes angels appear as men. And uh, so it said they saw the angels, the two men who told them that Jesus had risen just as he said he would. Uh, They were to meet him about 100 miles north in the region of Galilee. So they've got a good long trip to make to get to Galilee from where they are in Jerusalem. Uh, So the ladies ran to the disciples, uh, almost certainly in Jerusalem, and told them about what they had seen and heard. Listen to verses 11 and 12. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, to the apostles. They seemed like nonsense. Hey, the tomb is empty, and the tomb, the stone is rolled away, and the angel said that Jesus is risen, just as he said. Well, these words seemed like nonsense to the apostles, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. We know from one of the other gospels that John ran with him. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen clothes. So he went away amazed at uh, what had happened. So, it's almost certain that disciples did not believe the women because they were um, women. <laughs> they generally didn't value or believe the testimony of a woman in the first century. So, Peter and John raced to the tomb uh, to see if uh, what the women said was true. Uh, But the Lord didn't give the men the same experience. The men did not see the angels. The women did, but the men did not. And unlike Mary Magdalene, who saw Jesus uh, probably right after this, uh, they wouldn't see Jesus, the the men wouldn't see Jesus until later that day. And so the Lord is appearing to elevate the testimony and the value of women in that society and in the first uh, the the first century church culture uh, elevating the role of women uh, by allowing them to be the first ones to see the empty tomb and the first ones to hear of the angel saying that Jesus is risen and being the first ones to see the actual risen Jesus. Well, I love the story that appears in verses 13 through 35. Two disciples were on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a journey of about seven miles, and at a steady pace, that's, uh, you know, assuming that uh, it was reasonably smooth, the, the path was for them to walk, this would have taken at least a couple of hours, maybe three. Um, we're told that they uh, spent their time, uh, verse 14, discussing everything that had taken place, unquote. Well, in verses 15, and seven, 15 through 17, it says this, and while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented, divinely prevented, they were prevented from recognizing him. And then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged, unquote. Jesus was simply asking a question that would bring him into the discussion. He asked a question, what are you talking about? He was inviting himself into their discussion. Uh, They were talking about Jesus' death, burial, and the reports of the resurrection, but they just weren't sure of what they had heard. Uh, They were certain that they hadn't seen Jesus alive since his death. They hadn't seen Jesus, at least they didn't Think they had, but they were walking with him right then. But their eyes were, uh, you know, blinded, so that they were not—they were not blinded. They just couldn't recognize Jesus. So Jesus, uh, with his identity concealed from them, showed up to instruct and encourage them. And I love this. He begins by gently reprimanding them for not believing what the Old Testament prophets said was going to happen. They shouldn't be surprised. Jesus was saying that they heard reports that the prophecies in the Old Testament had actually been fulfilled. Listen to verses 25 and 26. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then we get to a spectacular verse. I love this verse. Jesus took them to the Old Testament and he started unpacking what each book said about the Messiah. His life, his death, his resurrection. Listen how Luke states this verse that I love. Luke 24, verse 27. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures... Then beginning with Moses, right? Moses is the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We believe that Moses wrote the first five books. So it says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets. And so sometimes the Old Testament was referred to this way. Moses wrote the first five and then all the prophets. That's the the rest of the scripture. And so it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I'm telling you that when I get to heaven, I plan to ask Jesus to have that Bible study all over again. I would love for him to teach me from the Old Testament, from Moses and all of the prophets, in all of the scriptures, all of the things that pointed to him. One of the things that I loved doing as I lectured on the Old Test in, in Old Testament survey last semester. As I took my students through the Old Testament, but every single book we hit, I pointed them to Jesus. I showed them where Jesus either showed up physically or Jesus was was pointed to as a uh, as a, a type. You know there was a type in the Old Testament, uh, something that was playing out, uh, the uh, the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover, all of that. I pointed them to Jesus because Jesus is all over the pages of the Old Testament. I've even read of one uh, hermeneutics. Professor, that's just a preaching professor that says that when you were preaching through the Old Testament, if you do not see Jesus, you have not rightly understood the text. And it sounds sounds wild to many people, but I'm just telling you, Luke 24, 27, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, all the prophets, he interpreted for the thing interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That tells me that every single book of the Old Testament, and that's the same number of books that we've got, um, every single book in the Old Testament, he took them to and he pointed out where things in that book pointed to him. I want to listen to Jesus. Give me that Bible study one time. I'd love to hear it. Well, when they arrived at Emmaus, they still didn't recognize Jesus. Uh, but even as an apparent stranger that they thought that he was, they invited him inside for a meal. And I don't believe that they um, could recognize him because uh, you know that he looked different. Couldn't recognize him because he looked different. Um, I think it was because God simply divinely kept them from recognizing him. I believe that our spiritual i mean our our eternal bodies the bodies that we will inhabit in heaven look very similar uh just in a much more wonderful way than the bodies that we have now um but uh but there was one thing that Jesus did that caused them to instantly recognize him listen to how luke describes this instance that caused them to recognize Jesus. It sounds a whole lot like the account of the last supper, the night that Jesus was betrayed. Look at Luke 24 verses 30 and 31. It said, "He." it was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. I'm telling you, that's almost word for word from the Lord's Supper. <laughs> And then their eyes were opened, verse 31 says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. So it was in the breaking of bread. It was it was like, th- we remember this. In fact, maybe there were more than just the 12 that were up there in the Lord's Supper. Maybe there were some that were spectators and watching on. Then um, these uh, guys... Um, they described what it was like to listen to Jesus teach from the Old Testament. They were telling each other, and this is incredible, in verse 32, they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Their hearts were burning within them. I'm not exactly sure what that felt like, but I think it was really, really, that's a good thing as they listen to Jesus teach, their hearts were burning. That just sounds like a sensation I'd love to have as I listen to Jesus teach. Well, this was too much to keep to themselves, so they raced back to Jerusalem, which was kind of an unheard of thing um, in that culture. Uh, dangers lurked along the road, robbers, all sorts of things, but they didn't care. They raced back to Jerusalem, um, maybe after after dark, and they told the apostles that they had seen Jesus, and they also heard from the apostles that Peter had already seen him. Um. As they were gathered together, Jesus showed up right in their midst, but they thought they were seeing a ghost, and he tried to assure them that it was really him. This is on the, the day that he rose from the dead. He rose that morning. and uh, This is later on that day, and uh, they thought they were seeing a ghost, but he was saying, no, it's really me, the, the, I've got flesh and bone, um, and ghosts don't have that, but they were still struggling to believe. So he asked them for something to eat, and then ate in front of them. Because ghosts, of course, don't eat. (laughs) Verses 41 and 42, But while they still were amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Yeah, that tells me, because this is the body that Jesus took to heaven um, at the end of this chapter. This is the body that Jesus took to heaven, as it's also recounted in Acts chapter 1. That tells me that the bodies that we have in heaven are capable of eating. And that's a good thing too. Then he uh, told the whole group uh, that everything needed to happen to him to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. And as a result... Verse 47, quote, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, unquote. That's what it's all about. It's about because of what Jesus did, we now can share the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. People can be forgiven, they can be made right with a holy God who must punish sin, and it's all because of Jesus. And we call them to trust in him, to turn from their sin, repent, and trust in him. Well, then Luke finishes his book with the same event that he started his next book with, the book of Acts. So let me read these verses as we conclude this section segment. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. That was just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And he lifted up his hands, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying and then rising again to pay for sins and the consequences of sins. Thank you for giving me, for giving us the faith, to trust in you so that we can be forgiven by the father, credited with your righteousness and begin being fitted for heaven. Help us, Holy Spirit, to live a life worthy of what Jesus did for us. I pray this, we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I hope that today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.